Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. The World Cup is dancing through the pointy end of the tournament as Brazil turn on the style, but Croatia need penalties to get through to the quarterfinals. We've got former Socceroo Tommy Orr and former Premier League star Michael Bridges to get into all the big talking points of the day, including the end of the AFC's participation in this World Cup. I'm your host, Teo Pelizzeri. This is the Optus Sport Football Podcast. Let's get in to the Pod. It was Jogo Bonito at the World Cup overnight and joining us in the Pod to do a bit of samba shuffling, former Socceroo Tommy Orr. Tommy, great to see you. Thanks for having me back. It's a pleasure. And all the way from the UK, Michael Bridges. Bridgie, the World Cup, you've been taking it all in and another goal-filled fun morning. Taking it all in, celebrating England's win and then the Brazilians this tonight or this morning, whatever time it was, absolutely incredible. A masterclass, samba brilliance and just a pleasure to watch. Now, some people have drawn comparisons to this first half of Brazil's 4-1 win against Korea like it was a Nike commercial. Uh, South Korea, you know, where the Washington Generals here in Brazil with a football version of the Harlem Globetrotters. I mean, Bridgie, just how good was this performance and what did you make of it? Just, you know, is they're, they're an amazing unit going forward. The counter-attack, the flair play, the combinational play. But not only that, they know how to break def- like break teams down as well when they're on the attacks. The defensive unit, stability, they make it look so easy. And like you say, the Harlem Globetrotters, they're playing with a smile on their face. They're playing with a togetherness. You can see it in the, the goals that they, they scored. I mean... Thiago Silva setting up the um, the one on the edge of the box for Richarlison. I mean, a centre-half with a touch and a pass appreciation of what he did there. He he was laughing. He, he knew it was that good when the camera went to him. He was, he was laughing himself. And then you see them go and celebrate with the manager. And he joins in and does the does like a little Brazilian samba with the boys. <laughs> this, the, this is what the World Cup is all about. And I thought it was very fitting because Pele hasn't been very well. We've all read the news and heard about the news around the world. He said he was going to be watching from his hospital bed and what a performance they've put, they have put on it. It's just a special team. Uh, we always rave about Brazilians. These are, these are producing on it. It is very similar. Somebody said there about an advert. I remember seeing the Brazilian boys in an airport for a Nike advert. Absolutely incredible. So, man, it was, we were blessed to witness that performance. Completely agree with Bridgie, you know, just the, the freedom that they play with and the, the front third combinations, it's, it really is beautiful to watch. And, you know, they've used every single player in their squad this tournament, which has to be the only team that's done that. And it just goes to show, you know, the depth that they've got, bringing on the likes of Martinelli and these types of things. I mean, yeah, they're, they're sport for choice. And I think that, you know, obviously aside from the, the attacking talent and their attacking play in this game, Allison, when he was called upon, made some brilliant saves in this game as well. So, you know, I think that that they're in a really good position to go on to yeah to to win this tournament potentially because you know we we always associate beautiful attacking play with Brazilian teams, but they you know in, in Allison they've probably got one of the best goal goalkeepers, if not the best goalkeeper in the world right now. Well, let's find out from Mark Schwartz over in Qatar what he makes of Brazil. Schwartz, can anyone actually beat this Brazil team? 
Oh, there's no doubt for me that Brazil at this moment in time are the most dangerous side in the in the left in the tournament, and also um, probably well, definitely putting the best 45 minutes performance I've seen so far this World Cup um, in their game this evening against the Korea Republic, um, with the players like Richarlison on absolutely red hot form, um, Vinicius Junior continuing his form for Real Madrid, being a real handful down the left hand side, and Neymar back from injury, and little theatrics more about playing football maybe that those two games away maybe the thought of maybe missing the world cup um made him realize you know it's about playing football and about trying to get the most out of this tournament and i, I was impressed with the way he played today they look solid all around however you never know it's a world cup look croatia is not going to be a, a pushover i think brazil should go through against croatia quite easily and it could set up a mouth-watering very tasty fixture if Argentina beat Netherlands of an Argentina v Brazil in the semi-final, which would be pretty spectacular. And then the other side, when you look at it, England, France, assuming Spain get through against Morocco, but that's no guarantee. Portugal, Switzerland, it could be either one of those. Uh, look, I still think we're up for a really good final. And if Brazil make the final, um, they're going to be challenged. They're going to be challenged all the way. Um, and I think... There's no guarantees they're going to win it, but they certainly are the favourites. Thanks to Mark Schwarzer, who is our man on the ground over in Qatar. I'll ask the same question to you two. I mean, 4-0 at halftime in a knockout game. You're subbing your keeper at the end of the match so all 26 players in the squad can have a taste of the action. Bridgie, are Brazil so far in front that they can't be caught? No, because one-off games, anything can happen. That's the joy of of World Cup. We've seen a a lot of shocks so far um, in this tournament. Uh, but the way that they are going about their business, it's they can take a lead, they can go on top and score more goals, they can come from behind and get themselves back in games, and they've shown that defensively they don't concede many, many goals. So bef- I don't want to say I told you so. Before this tournament, Swarty would have said, oh, Germany, Germany, Germany would have beaten the Brazilians. Well, they're not, they're not in it anymore, so he couldn't say that. I did, however, say that we would see a Brazil when I did the draw against England in the final. I hope I am right. Um, and I did have Brazil actually winning this. So if you're asking me for a man that would love to see England win the World Cup, yes, I would love to have it to the final. I'm going to be cheering England on. But I, have, I from day one, said this Brazilian team would go on to lift the World Cup. Um, and I'm sticking by that. I don't think they can be beaten. I mean, they're definitely making a very compelling case. And, um, you know, I think that the thing is, like Bridgie said, you know, on, on any given day, anyone's capable of beating anyone. And you've seen... You know, in the first game, Spain beat Costa Rica 7-0. You saw England put a lot past Iran. So there's a lot of teams who have put, you know, on in unbelievable individual performances. And it's about on the day, you know, they're obviously coming up against Croatia next. And, you know, Croatia is more than capable of pulling up an upset, which they've proven in historical, you know, in past tournaments, I should say. Well, well, already Brazil have got the advantage in that one, Tommy, because obviously the extra time, the penalties that went went on, in that game, the you know the extra days, yeah. I think the extra you know what it's like when you do extra time, you've got a you've got a quick turnaround. Um, I think it's it's advantage Brazil going into that one straight away because I agree. of that fundamental. Yep. Uh, early thoughts on the quarterfinal against Croatia. Then I, I they've met in the 2006 World Cup. It was Kaká who scored the only goal. They played the opening game of the 2014 World Cup. Controversial penalty in there, but Brazil still won by two goals on that occasion. Uh, did Croatia do anything against Japan? We'll get to that game a bit later, but uh, just on the quarterfinal in prospect, have you seen anything to suggest that Brazil's in trouble, Tommy? 
I think I agree with Bridgie. I think Brazil will win that game, but you know, obviously Croatia's got a bit of an aging squad as well, and playing the 120 minutes with a short turnaround is not going to do them any favors. Um, obviously, in the second half against Korea, Brazil was in cruise control too, so they should go into that game fairly fresh, relatively. And yeah, I think they're going to have too much kind of firepower, but I think it will be not. As straightforward as everyone assumed as well, because you know, with the lights of Modric and Perisic and these types of players, Croatia is more than capable of you know scoring a goal, and they've they've proven as well defensively that they're really hard to break down. So, I think it'll be a good game. Yeah, and the good thing they've got, you know, they've got resolve because there's a lot of times when Croatia go behind, they tend to get back into games. That's one thing that they don't they don't throw in the towel. Um, you know, and again, again there tonight when they've they've gone behind, they've found a way to get a result and get through it. Um, and I think the experience that they've had at previous big major tournaments, when they've gone to extra time, when they've gone to penalties, that gives them that extra grit and determination and the nous to know how to win this game. Um, and I think you saw that in the penalties. Japan looked so, so vulnerable um, and nervous about the whole thing. Croatia just found found a way. Um, but yeah, I just think Brazil, too too much quality, too fit in the next um, the next match and it'll be, it'll be too much for Croatia. Let's talk about Richarlison. He scored one of the four goals, his third of the tournament. So he's level with Messi, Giroud, Saka, Gakpo, uh, Morata and Rashford of the players that are still in the tournament. But can anyone challenge Mbappe for the golden boot? Do Brazil share the love a bit too much? Oh, I think yeah, I think it's interesting as well. I think a lot will depend on who kind of progresses to, to the final as well because, you know, obviously England's more than capable of beating France on the weekend and then that could potentially give you know the, the likes of Richarlison a few extra games to get the golden boot. So, I mean, I think that if if France is to to you know go on to the semis or the final, I think Mbappe will be you know difficult to beat in the golden boot. But like you mentioned, Brazil's sharing all the goals, and you know obviously you know there's there's obviously Morata and these types of players as well. So it'll be really interesting to follow that. But I do think Mbappe will run away with it. I'm hoping it's Richarlison that gets the golden boot, even though I picked Mbappe to be top scorer in this tournament. I do want him to score against England and I want him to go out. And I hope that Richarlison gets far more into the quarterfinals and the semis. And um, England managed to send the French pack in along with Mbappe. But my word, he was unbelievable yet again. The two goals were just... I, I keep watching them because I can't understand how he's actually... What he's done to that ball when he's put that one in the top near post corner against a goalkeeper, it's, it's just incredible. I wouldn't want to be a goalkeeper these days the way the ball moves, put it that way. Now, we will get on to talking about the defeated team South Korea later in the show when we also discuss Japan. So let's stay with the winners and get to maybe the one little bone of contention that some people had with this win. Roy Keane, speaking on ITV, said, I can't believe what I'm watching. I've never seen so much dancing. It's like watching Strictly. I don't like this. People say it's their culture, but I think that's really disrespecting the opposition. It's four goals, and they are doing it every time. I think it's disrespectful dancing like that every time they score. I don't mind the first jig or whatever that was for the first goal, but not every time it's disrespectful. Even their manager gets involved. I don't like it. How much of this is Brazil and how much of this is Roy Keane? <laughs> I think it's just them expressing themselves and enjoying the moment. And I think that, you know, it, it's it's something you've always associated with Brazilian football. And I think, you know, I probably don't expect the Irish players to carry on like that, but it's a completely different culture. And for me, I think it, it's beautiful to watch. And I, I, I don't think they're doing it as a sign of disrespect. It's just them enjoying the moment. And I think that's maybe where it's misunderstood. 
Yeah, they, they dance on the way to the games. They dance when they win games back in the hotel. You see them. They've, that's the togetherness I'm, I'm talking about. You know, they're all they're all on board with it. And it, I don't think it was disrespectful in the slightest. I heard I was actually watching the game. Um, I heard Keane's comments. And I also saw the other pundits that were sitting next to him just laughing, just going, you know, it's typical Roy Keane, Mr. <laughs> Miserable. But when, you know, when you see him with Micah Richards, he enjoys having a little bit of a laugh and a joke and he dances around the studio every now and again. So I think we take uh, Keane's compliments, uh, comments with a, a pinch of salt, as, as always. He, he, me- he means well by it, but with his Brazilian players, they're consistent. They weren't showboating. It was just what they do. And I, I-, I love seeing it. This is, what the world- this is what the World Cup's all about. Now, Graham soon has followed up on ITV saying, it's only a matter of time before someone goes right through one of these Brazilians. It's all well and good to, to do this when you're 4-0 up against Korea. I know they did it on, on every goal. But do you think Croatia will take exception if they perceive Brazil to be disrespecting them? Because it is a, a bit of a different clash of cultures. I think there's an element of whenever teams maybe outside of Europe or South America play Brazil, it's almost just a privilege to share the field with them and they perceive it to be, you know, we're playing the team that is known for football. Croatia won't see it like that. They'll see it a bit differently. Bridgie, do you think there'll be a bit more respect demanded by Croatia? Yeah, they'll demand it, but will they get it? No, they won't, because the Brazilians won't change their their, way, their style of play. They won't change their celebrations. And good on Croatia. If they want to go, and like Graham Sooner says, you want to go and kick lumps out of them, go for your life. Because if you do that and you, you let frustration get you and you let it get the better of you, what are you going to get? You're going to get cards. They could be down to 10 men. So, you know, looking back, your players of Maradona and Messi, everybody tries to snap them and bring them down. You're almost... You're encouraging it when when Neymar's on the ball. He's encouraging that that challenge to come in, so he can win his team a free kick or he can dance them dance past them, um, and that's where you've got to be careful. And I, I hope Croatians don't just go out and try and kick kick lumps out of them. They've got to concentrate on their own football and try and compete and keep the mentality down. But there's nothing wrong with leaving one on somebody just to remind them that they're in for a game. So. Um, yeah, you know, Graham Soon is one of the toughest men he'll ever meet. But uh, would he be able to play his game nowadays? Not a chance, because he'd, he'd be sitting in the stands every bloody week. Well, so the tangent from that is this World Cup has been about a new culture. First World Cup in the Middle East, uh, a World Cup which has been far easier for supporters from North Africa in particular to attend, which is why we've seen amazing crowds for uh, Tunisia and Morocco at this tournament. Um when we get to the clash of cultures like this, Tommy, and we're debating whether or not it's respectful or not, or you know whether a, a dance is perceived to simply be culture or whether it's disrespectful to the opposition, is this an eye-opening moment for maybe Europe and the West as to how football is interpreted in different parts of the world? I mean, I think you see it every World Cup and, you know, there's always kind of the the celebrations or the way that different, you know, groups of supporters um, act. I remember in the last European Championships, the, the Iceland national team with the Viking clap and these types of things in the crowd. So I think that's the beauty of the World Cup. You know, it's a hot pot of cultures, you know, and I think that so far in this tournament, there's just been a, a mutual respect. And I mean, I don't expect it to be any different in this game, obviously, like you touched on. There are some, yeah. There are very different cultures and very different attitudes towards the game, but that's that's the beauty of football. And I think that you know, um, on any given day, either side's capable of coming out on top. And I think that everybody will see it in a good spirit. Can I just say another thing on that with the cultural side of stuff? What I've absolutely loved this World Cup is seeing 
teams and fans mixing in the crowds and there's been hardly any, if any, animosity. There's been no hooliganism done and you've got to respect because the laws in the country, but also the, the drink ban as well in the stadiums, in the grounds. I, I, I'm totally for it. I've got to say that. I might be speaking well out of turn, but I'm so I'm sick to death at major tournaments when it's always the... I see English fans and European fans fighting and you see all this stuff going on in the streets and, and outside and inside the stadiums. We haven't seen that or we, you know, I've definitely not witnessed it. I don't know if the media have been told to keep a wrap on that, but I'm just all for it and I think it's got a lot to do with the... The situation when everybody was going, oh, there's no drinking in the stadiums. It's a disgrace. Well, no, it's 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 a it's a law, it's a rule that was brought out, and I think it's enhanced the tournament itself no end. Now, Bridgie, in your career, were there ever opponents, whether it was a goal celebration or just with the way they carried themselves, that you feel as though didn't show your team's respect when it was merited? Um. Oh, good question. Uh, well, every when I played for Leeds, nobody liked Leeds because everybody called us dirty Leeds from the past. That was when we were, we were just known as the, the the bad boys from previous regimes. So we were always hated everywhere we went. Um, but I, there was a there was an air of arrogance, I must say, and uh, about Arsenal when they had Henri, um, Vieira, uh, Petit, it, it was, uh, Robert Perez. They, they, they were untouchable. Um, because they were so damn good, but there was the, there was the the moments of the flamboyancy and some sometimes the showboating. You, I remember David Batty used to get so wound up and say, "I'm gonna, I'm 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 sorry, Gaffer, I'm gonna get a red card second half because I'm gonna do some serious damage to one of these players because they're showboating in my face." So you know, Levy said, "Don't get on with it, Bats. Go and see what you can do. Go and snap somebody." Um, that was probably the only team in my career where it, it used to really frustrate. It's probably because we could never get a result against them. But there was just the nature and the manner they went about. It was a very arrogant, egotistical way that you just wanted to, to meet one of them in the car park and give them one. But you don't see that in this Brazil team? You think they're, they're doing it the right way? I, I, I just think that's them. They've done it that, they haven't just done it in this game. That, that is what is getting them through. It's the, it's the culture. It's the camaraderie. It's, the, it's what they are doing inside their camp. There's nothing wrong with it. They're not, it it's not, I, I, see, I don't mind that one bit. Now, Tommy, we saw Neymar do a Pele celebration and then there was a big banner from the Brazilian players on the field showing support for Pele, who is hospitalised. At the moment, the crowd certainly had their own messages of support with banners as well. How much is this World Cup about Pele and is it now destiny for Brazil to do it for him? I mean, the legacy that Pele's left on Brazilian football is obviously well documented and, um, you know, all the players, I'm sure it's given them that little bit of extra motivation and... I mean, you saw by their performance this morning that, you know, I mean, I, I don't think that they would have been thinking about that too much going into the game. I'm sure they would have been focused on the job, but all these kind of little things, you know, add up and maybe give that slight bit of extra motivation. And there's no doubt that they would want to, you know, win it for him, I think. So for sure, I think that's the case. Well, we'll leave that game there. You're listening to the Gegen Pod, and on the other side of this short break, we'll get into the day's other match, which had our first penalty shootout of the World Cup. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to the Gagan Pod. We've got former Socceroo Tommy Orr and former Premier League star Michael Bridges with you today. And let's talk about Croatia beating Japan on penalties. First penalty shootout of the tournament and credit to Scott McDonald because he did tip a penalty shootout on the Gagan Pod yesterday, albeit he thought it was going to be after a nil-all draw. Tommy, this game was probably a lot more attacking than perhaps we might have expected after talking about it on yesterday's pod. Definitely. And I think that, you know, in the first half, I think... uh... Japan, you know, especially off set pieces, they were looking very dangerous and um, kind of as the game wore on, Croatia kind of wrestled their momentum back into it. And um, yeah, I mean, the penalty shootout, I think that um, Japan will obviously live to regret the way they kind of went into that because, um, yeah, I think they, you know, with their penalties that they they didn't take them with any conviction at all. And um, that was kind of the difference. I think Croatia showed all their experience in the shootout and that goes to show the fine margins at this level. And there was not too much between the teams over the 120 minutes, but ultimately I think Croatia's kind of experience got them through. I was just disappointed that there was a 20 minute spell in the second half. I thought Croatia were just totally dominating the game and they could have just gone on to win it. Had they just put a little bit more emphasis, it was almost like they were, they were resigned or worried about the counter-attack or like you said there, Tommy, the set players and they didn't go and, Capitalised, and I thought they would have been kicking themselves if they had gone out in extra time or in penalties because there was you could just tell they had they had a a very good hold on the game and there was an there was a few opportunities where they could have killed the game off um, and and got rid of Japan but they just didn't have the emphasis to go for it and I, I really felt like that was a shown a little bit of weakness but um, they, they found a way to get through it and you know I think like Tommy said Japan just. Lost their way, ran out of steam, and going into penalties, uh, you know, they, they hadn't been there before, and Croatia had the upper hand. Now, before we hear from Mark Schwarzer about the penalties in this tournament from a goalkeeping perspective, Bridgie, I want the strikers' perspective. We've seen nine out of twenty-one missed. It's almost fifty-fifty at the moment. Not going too good. What is happening with the penalty takers? The pressure, isn't it? It's absolutely incredible. I mean, we saw Lewandowski um, miss one, and then he missed another, but had to retake it. Um, yeah, I mean, them penalties today for <laughs> in the Japan-Croatia game, I've got to say, they were honking. I mean, even my, I was, one of my, my daughter went, Dad, are these really professional footballers that are taking these penalties? So we had a right good laugh about it. But it's amazing what pressure can do for you. And, um, you know, I've, I've never been in a major tournament myself, but playing in Champions League and you know that it could go to extra time and penalties in certain matches that you do practice them. And you practice them behind closed doors as a team and you do it. But nothing can replicate being in a stadium when you know your nation, everything counts on it. And I think that's the the, the biggest thing. Plus, I think a lot of goalkeepers um, will do their homework because you can see where most of the penalty takers, you know, you get the averages of all the hot spots on the on the footage of where they go. Uh, so you've got a, it's a, it's a great game of, of, of gamesmanship as well because the goalkeepers can say, I know where you're going to go. I've watched your last seven penalties, so it's, it's interesting. Let's get the goalkeeper's perspective on this and go back to Mark Schwarzer in Qatar. Well, I think goalkeepers have simply gotten better um, at saving penalties. There's a lot more research done into it. Um, a lot of effort, a lot of time is spent on goalkeepers looking at ways to 
find those fine margins, those one percentages as people keep saying these days. It's very much what goalkeepers are doing. The analysing that goes on is on another level. Um, and I've always said the pressure is always on the kicker. So the goalkeeper does everything right. The goalkeeper does all the research, kind of almost gets into the head of the penalty taker um, without going too early, then there is a chance. Um, but still, it's 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 certainly in favour of the kicker, but goalkeepers are getting better and better uh, all the time at it. Thanks to Mark Schwarzer. And we will check in with him again later on in the pod. Now, the only other players to have saved three penalties in a shootout, uh, which is what Dominic Lavakovic did this morning, are Daniel Subasic in the 2018 match against Denmark, where, of course, Croatia won on penalties and then they beat Russia on penalties the game after two. Ricardo from Portugal in 2006 against England. Of course, England going out on penalties. Sorry, Bridgie, that's nothing new. Some pretty amazing goalkeeping performances. Do you think shootouts are going to become... Uh, more of a thing in this tournament, Bridgie, because it seems as though we have left the, the nil-all draws behind in the group stage, thankfully. I hope we've left the nil-all draws behind. I'm disappointed that Scotty Max saying he was after a nil-all draw going to penalties. <laughs> um, thankfully, we did get goals. <laughs> um, so, no, I'm not going to be that um, disappointed and, and down about it. I'm, I'm hoping we've seen the back of it. Like I say, going forward with the quality that you have in the final third with the Brazilians, with the, the French... Uh, England ticking and you know I've been super impressed with Spain as well uh, the amount of chances that they've created in this World Cup they've always had problems um, you know finishing or, or, or finishing off teams with high results uh, at the final third but you know they've, they've got a man or several players that can now and they're sharing the joy around so I, I can't see it I think we probably will see one or two more penalty shootouts but I'm hoping that the most the majority of them are decided in normal time Now, let's move on to the eliminated teams today. They were both from the AFC, so all Asian team representation in this World Cup is now over. However, with three teams getting through to the round of 16, Tommy Orr, what have you made of the AFC's participation in this World Cup? Yeah, obviously, I think we um, all the Asian nations gave a really good account of themselves. And you look at the likes of, you know, the teams that also didn't progress, like Saudi Arabia... And Iran as well. They had their moments in this world, in this tournament, and were perhaps unlucky not to get to the round of sixteen as well. So I think that, you know, generally speaking, the Asian football confederations probably earned a lot of respect in this tournament. And I think that, um, yeah, it, it goes to show. I think we've touched on a few pods recently that I think the the gap between you know Asia and and the other confederations around the world is getting smaller and smaller. And I think that bodes well for the whole region. Bridgie, before the tournament, Jamie Carragher didn't pick a single AFC team to get out of the group. In fact, I believe he said that all of them were going to finish bottom of their groups. So, I mean, it's one thing to say that the AFC needs to be shown respect, but we've been here before. We had, uh, in 2010, Japan and Korea make it to the round of 16. Of course, South Korea made it to the semifinals in 2002. Is it just that people get four-yearly amnesia, or is this actual evidence that the AFC is progressing? Do you know what it is? I think it's absolute amateur journalism and professionalism when you don't do your research to find out what the teams in the AFC have been doing in the Asian Cups and in the the lead-up and the qualification to that. So it's you know uh, I'm a big fan of of Carragher's. I think what he what he does in the in in England on the you know the big matches and Monday night football and that is brilliant. But to count to, to you know to write off all the teams in the the Asian Confederation and say that they're going to be like that, that's just that's just lazy and, and you haven't done your research because as they've shown the the gap is not as huge as what it used to be now. It's come come down and having lived 
over there in Australia for 12 years and witnessed where the football with the Socceroos, with the Matildas, with, with what's going on in, in, the, um, you know, in the, the Asian Cup and seeing all the teams that are at hand and how, how much of a tough qualification it can be, you know, for, for Australia and the Socceroos. It was, it was a huge qualification this time. And yeah, I think it's the the gap is definitely coming down as as they've shown that, and I just think them them Cara comments can be chucked in the bin. Now let's get Mark Schwartz's thoughts on how the AFC teams went in this tournament. Mark, give us your insights. I think Asian teams have done incredibly well at this World Cup. Um, <clears throat> I think if you look at the three that obviously made the uh, the knockout stages in Japan, Korea Republic, and Australia, um, I think. All three of them deserved to. All three of them had big upsets in their groups. And um, I think they showed that Asian football is getting better. We saw with Saudi Arabia, the one of the biggest upsets in World Cup history, beating Argentina uh, in that opening fixture. And I thought they were very, very good in that game. And just a little bit unfortunate in the latter stages of the tournament. I think they probably um, lost their call a little bit, lost their nerve a little bit and therefore paid the price. Maybe that win against Argentina was just a little bit too big for them at that particular moment in time. But they certainly are heading in the right direction and look a very, very good side. Um, and as we said, we've mentioned the soccer was on numerous occasions. Um, from, from an outside world, certainly overperformed, but this team showed how good a team they are and that they deserve to be in that knockout stages. Thanks to Mark Schwartzer there. All right, so as we go into just a little bit of a further look at the AFC, Tommy, at the 2026 World Cup, we assume it's going to 48 teams, and regardless of whether it's three-team group stages or four-team group stages, the AFC at the moment has been told that they're going to have eight qualifying places. Now, my concern is that the Socceroos obviously made very hard work of getting to this most recent World Cup when it was only four and a half places. Does dangling the carrot of eight places mean that the likes of Thailand and Oman and China and Bahrain and even teams we may not have thought of, they're going to lift their level because now that opportunity to get to a World Cup is actually that much more accessible. It might be bigger safety net for the Socceroos, but does that come with an element of risk qualifying it for 2026? I mean, I think if you look over the trend of Asian football in the last 10 years, you're looking at countries like you know Vietnam, China, the amount of money that they've spent on football and how they've developed. I think that they're already getting stronger and stronger. And as you mentioned, this is only going to be an added incentive and it probably makes their you know hopes of reaching the World Cup much more realistic. But I think that's the trend that's already happening. I mean, we talked about you know, the Asian teams on the world stage bridging the gap. I think that a the Asian Confederation itself is becoming much much more competitive and you see the the amount of money that and the resources that some of these nations are throwing at football. I think it's only a matter of time, you know, with, with huge populations to support um, you know, the talent and these types of things that they get more and more competitive. So I mean obviously from a Socceroos perspective, I think that our biggest kind of challenge going forward in order to to stay ahead of the pack is going to be um, to to increase our depth because right now, you know, we probably have, you know, 30, 35 players ready for international football. But if you compare that with the other top nations in Asia, I think they've probably got more than us. So I think that should be our focus, um, yeah, kind of going forward is, is producing more and more top talent that can be ready for international football. Just on that point, Tommy, the number of Japanese players that were playing in Germany, uh, the German press was keen to highlight how ironic it was that players 
Japanese but in the German leagues, had beaten them at this tournament. And we've made a lot of very few Australians being in the top five leagues. It was a big deal for Aydin Hrustic to be in the Bundesliga and then to go to Serie A. It's a big deal for Patrick Kisnorbo to get the job at Troyes in France because it's a manager in the top five leagues as well. Is that going to happen in this next World Cup qualifying cycle due to Australia's performance in this World Cup? Or is it, are there other factors here that are going to determine how many of our players can maybe follow that Japanese path of more players into the top five leagues? I think. I mean, I think on the back of this tournament, I think that we we touched on it recently as well. I think there will be some interest in some of the players that you know played really well, the likes of Suta, Rolls, these types of players. And I think that there's every chance they'll go on to play in bigger leagues, but... I think, you know, as a as a trend going forward, I actually think it all comes back to the A-League because, you know, we, if you give more and more opportunity to younger players and give them a platform to perform well in that league, then, you know, overseas competitions will look more seriously at the A-League and see it as a, you know, as a, as a ground for, for great talent. And I think that that should kind of be a focus. And if we want to do what Japan's kind of created and have, you know, many players playing in, in the top leagues, whether it's the Bundesliga or the Premier League or whatever it is, I think that you know, the investment and, and, and the the local product is what we need to focus on. And I think that, that everything will kind of come as a result of doing that well. Bridgie, I heard the Peter Drury commentary of the Garen Qual chance, which was saved right at the end of the Socceroos-Argentina game. Had he scored that goal, my goodness, it would have been one of the greatest moments in Australian sport. But... Is Garen Quoll an ambassador for the youth talent in the A-League now? I know he was has been a cut above in his very short stint, but how important are his performances wherever Newcastle send him out on loan to keep the scouts' eyes coming back to the A-League and, as Tommy says, have the top clubs looking at what is going on in Australia? Oh, yeah, he's definitely flying the flag because, like you say, um, before going to answer that question, actually, have you... There's an amazing bit of footage that's been going around. I don't know who's done it, but Garankwal actually scores the goal. It, yes, it yeah, mean? I've seen it. They, <laughs> it's an amazing it, piece of editing, isn't it, Bridgie? It's, 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 it, it's what it the is, world would be like if the ball had gone in. <laughs> it was brilliant because there was that moment where the ball kind of stood still. Me and Tommy were talking about, you think, is that going in or isn't it? And it just fell into Martinez's hands. The other clip shows him hitting the back of the net. It's absolutely brilliant. Genius work. What could have been? Um, but everybody is watching out for Qual, you know, like I say, it's a, it's a pathway. It's shown that there is an opportunity once again to get yourself to a big European football club off the back of that. And, you know, Nick Montgomery at the Central Coast Mariners has played a huge part in doing that and helping him um, in his development with what he's doing at Central Coast. He's not the first player that is left to go overseas um, from the Central Coast Mariners un- under Monty's guidance. So I think there's a there's a lot to be said by that. As long as they're, they're developing and they're, they're coming through in the correct way, they're getting man- mentored. And the, the club and the coaches at that club aren't afraid to say, you know what it is, go and spread your wings, let's try and make this happen. I think there's some managers in the past that have definitely, well, I, I know officially, where they've blocked players getting moves overseas. When I was over at Newcastle Jets, um, players have got the opportunity to go overseas and they weren't... They, they, they basically weren't allowed, um, and that just creates friction then between the player who could have gone um, and the coach at the time. So it's um, yeah, I'm, I'm all for what Nick Montgomery's been allowed to do, and like you say, everybody else now has hope that there is opportunities for for kids in Australia once again to go and play in the biggest leagues in the world. 
Now, the talent's one thing, and we've discussed the pathway and, and what can happen there. But how about also the way we play, Tommy? Because I think it's it's well acknowledged that Graham Arnold's mental side of the game and his coaching, he's leaned on Rene Muhlenstein, his assistant with the scouting and the preparation. And obviously, Australia got their tactics right to go as far as they did. How much of this, though, is about the actual football and how much of this is about the mindset going forward if we're, say, going to contend for the Asian Cup and make sure that the progress results-wise that Australia made in this tournament is backed up with performances when maybe the heightened emotion and the siege mentality of Australia against the world is no longer there because it won't be there at an Asian Cup because I suspect that we'll go there as equals with the Japan and a Korea as a contending team to win it. Yeah, well, I think the thing in this tournament, you know, the the talking about the tactics of the Socceroos, I think that, you know, obviously the the mental resilience that Arnie kind of instills in in the team's well documented, but I think that the tactics that he deployed in the games allowed our strengths to to come to to fruition, you know. We were in the other team's faces. We were really aggressive and you know, there's been a lot of talk about the Aussie DNA that from Arnie himself and I think that the way he set us up allowed that to kind of happen and be effective in the games and I mean I think that Arnie's really good at controlling the narrative and we obviously we don't know what he's going to be doing and whether he's going to be there for the Asian Cup but he'll he'll have the players ready for the games and I remember when when I was at the Asian Cup in uh 2015 with uh Ange Postacoglu and, and we went on to win it you know when we were playing the teams that we were fancied to beat before the game he he would make sure the challenge and, and the player's mindset going into the game was um, on challenges that he had set us. It wasn't only to win, but it was he wanted to completely dominate the other team. And I think that's kind of where in the Asian Cup that will come more to the fore. He wanted to, you know, there was, there was he wanted 500 passes. He wanted this many forward passes. There was, you know, KPIs that he wanted to hit in the game. And I think that's kind of where that comes into it. And it's about really imposing yourself on the opposition. And I'm sure that, Whoever's in charge will find a way to set the narrative within the team to make sure that that's where their headspace is at. And Bridgie, given that you're in the UK where Australia seems to have been given a lot of respect out of this tournament, regardless of who's in charge, whether it's Arnie for another year or a full contract extension or whether it's a new direction, what do you want to see football-wise from Australia? There's no doubt that Arnie's embodied sort of the the fighting underdog spirit of the Australians and he's got amazing results doing it but football wise what do Australia need to do to push on and make sure that the 2022 World Cup doesn't stand alone as remember when in a few years time do you know what Arnie wasn't scared of um, upsetting the curriculum or the FFA curriculum the 4-3-3 play out at all costs he wasn't ups- he wasn't scared about going away from that and playing like the whether it's a four four two, people might say, or a four two three one, or a, you know four two two as he calls it, going away, becoming versatile, showing that there is other ways to play the game. Um, one thing that frustrated me going through the coaching badges in Australia is that it was basically a brainwash of four three three is the way to go. It must be this, and when you try to challenge that and come up with different things, it's kind of like no, no, this is how we do it. This is it must be done this way. So Arnie wasn't scared about going away from that and, and doing different things, and he didn't care for the coaches were going well. How can the national team manage to do that when we're getting told to do it this way? Well, he's the head coach of a national team. He's shown that he's flexible. He's shown he's versatile, and you need that in the world game. And that's one thing that I hope comes out of this that you realise that there's not one way to play football. There is hundreds of different ways. There is no right or wrong way to coach. You learn by your mistakes, and you learn by things that you you've achieved. And I think the like what we've all gathered is that 
every Aussie that I played with or played against when they were in the big leagues had this hard work ethic. Maybe not so much more of a Duke like because he didn't bother his backside, but he was unbelievable at what he did. Um, the the hard work and mentality, like to get in their faces, let's show that we're winners and all the rest of it. And Arnie's brought that spirit and that winning mentality back to this group, um, as well as in, in as well as integrating tactics and styles and showing that we can change and adapt our game to get the best out of the attacking side of the game or to show that a defensively unit when we need to. So that that's a huge thing. And that was so positive for me to see Arnie not scared of the curriculum to go and change that and basically tell shove the Dutch four three three and say this is how we, we need to win games this way. Yeah, I think that um as well further to that point, you know, when you look at the the dynamics of the games in this tournament and the way they kind of unfolded, I think in most of the games the soccer is played, we didn't have most of the possession. So I think that you know, and we, we did control the game for many periods of the game, but we managed to do that without having the ball. And I think that the big challenge for us, you know, as a nation will be can we produce the technical talent and these types of things to control the game with the ball. I think that's something that, you know, it's not really something that we've been able to do maybe since the golden generation, but I think that's kind of the next step. And I think that, you know, we've definitely got the emerging talent and the technical players to be able to do that. But at the Asian Cup, you know, I think the emphasis we're probably going to be in, in many of the games having 70, 80% of the possession and we need to find a way um, to, to break through the opposition defence. And I think that'll be a completely different type of challenge than what we faced in this tournament. Big picture, and this is just a, a quick answer. We've got the next World Cup in Canada, USA, Mexico. 2030, there's a bunch of bids. We've got Spain, Portugal, Ukraine. We've got a, a South America Four Nations bid. And we've also got Saudi Arabia, who appear to be moving into favoritism. Do you see an, a, an AFC team, whether it's a Japan or a Korea or an emerging team, winning a World Cup in the next two or three, in the next uh, 12 years? Or are we still 20-plus years away, Tommy and Bridgie? I think it's possible. I mean, we've seen, um, you know, when Korea reached the semi-final, was it 2002? Um, so we've seen Asian teams go very far in these tournaments already. And I mean, you know, this World Cup as well, there's been a lot of surprising results. But, you know, eight or 10 years or whatever it is from now or 12 years in the in the tournaments to come, that's a long time in football and a lot of things can change and there'll be a new generation coming through then. And I think that, like we touched on before, that, how Asia's kind of bridging the gap on, on the rest of the world. And in 12 years, there's no reason to suggest or reason to think that that trend won't continue. So there's no reason that that can't happen. 12 years, I would like to think so. Um, because like Tommy said, they're, they're, they're bridging the gap, no pun intended, by the way, is definitely coming less and less. And like 12 years, three more World Cups, um, any, anything can happen. We've seen the African nations... Um, Teams come. I think it was Pelly made a statement that an African team will win the World Cup sooner or later. Um, he's, he's still obviously waiting to, to see that moment. Um, and obviously the Asian Confederations, the teams that have been involved, have showcased and had possibly some of the most exciting games at this World Cup and, and, and showed what they're all about. So, um, yeah, it's, I can't see it happening in the next one in America, um, in Canada, but the one after that. Uh, but there's, a, there's a, a hell of a possibility, especially with this the Japanese team. Well, speaking of African teams, let's get to the last CAF team standing in the tournament uh, and look ahead to the remaining round of 16 games. Morocco take on Spain. Let's get your tips. Who's going to win and why, Tommy? I do have Spain to win, but I think that this is going to be a really good game because Morocco in this tournament has been sensational and I think they're going to get into Spain's faces and make life really difficult for them. But I do think Spain will be too strong. 
I am going to go and not sit in the fence here. I'm going to say Morocco will get this game won. I've been super impressed wow. with their work. I've been un- I've been so impressed with the work ethic of this team, the attacking prowess. Hakimi's been absolutely sensational. He's he's he is an absolute freak. The last time I saw somebody cover them out of distance that he's done at a World Cup uh, was the Brazilian Cafu, who we just get up and down and up and down. Uh, he's been a standout, and I can see them really getting in the faces of um, of Spain and totally disrupting them a bit, like we saw when you know Japan had a goal first half. They were totally outplayed. Totally outclassed. They, they give so much respect to Spain. And then they thought, you know what it is? We've got nothing to lose here. And as soon as you went and pressed man on man, it, it's a completely different um, ball game when you're, when you're attacking. So I'm going to say that Morocco will get the job done here and Spain will be going, see you later. Wow. Okay. And the other game is Portugal against Switzerland. We'll start with you, Bridgie. Who do you like here? Portugal and Switzerland, I've been impressed with both teams, actually. Um, more so Switzerland, the way they managed to come back and, and really, really upset Serbia in that game. They showed that they're capable of scoring the goals when they need to, but defensively they've been so well as when they've had to dig in there. Um, Portugal with Ronaldo and the quality that they've got on the ball. I, I can't call this one. I really, really can't. I can see this one. I'm not going to do a Scotty McDonald. It's not going to be a nil-niller, but I can see this going to extra time and potentially penalties. Yeah, I'm going to put my neck on the line, but I have rarely been right in this tournament. But I think that... uh, Don't do it again, Tommy. Just leave it. (laughs) (laughs) I think Switzerland will win this one. And it's um, Switzerland's always a funny one because, you know, they're never really a team that comes into my mind leading into major tournaments, but they always seem to do well. And I remember in the Euros a few years ago where they knocked out France in the the same, in the the quarterfinal or the round of 16 or whatever it was. And... Um, yeah, like Bridgie said, this tournament, I think they've looked really good. And obviously, Portugal's got a lot of star power. But I just think that Switzerland might get the job done in this one. Yes, yeah, so a big thanks to Tommy Orr and also Michael Bridges and for Mark Schwarzer, our man on the ground over in Qatar. Don't forget, the Gegen Pod is daily during the World Cup. So make sure you hit subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We will be back tomorrow to talk about the two remaining round of 16 games. And why not rate us five stars while you're there? If the World Cup hasn't been enough of a football fix, don't forget that WSL continues live and exclusive. You can find all of that on Optus Sport. I've been your host, Teo Pelizzeri. Thanks for listening to The Gegenpod. We'll be back tomorrow.